I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter, today I've invited White House correspondent for the New York Times, Maggie Haberman, to talk about her big scoop regarding White House trade advisor Peter Navarro's memo to the President of the United States back in January about COVID-19's implications for the United States. Maggie, thanks so much for joining us today, especially on a day when you've got a, a very big story broke in the New York Times under your byline. First of all, tell us who Peter Navarro is and tell us what the story is and why it's so significant. Sure. So I'll tell you why I think it's significant. Um, We had a story last night that Peter Navarro, who's the president's trade advisor, who is a a major China hawk, um, sees everything negatively through the lens of China's behavior, wrote two memos. One was at the end of January. The other was at the end of February. The first one was the most striking because it was related to wanting a travel ban, but he warned about the possibility of a pandemic, the possibility of massive loss of life if there was not an aggressive containment strategy and um, economic losses. And this memo, we don't know that the president saw it, but it was sent around the White House to a number of officials. And it's just the first time we have evidence of somebody internally putting on paper early on concerns about where the coronavirus spread might lead, especially at a time when the president was still downplaying it. And why is Peter Navarro such a controversial figure inside the administration? Look, he's he's looked at very skeptically, um, in part because, as I said, he views everything through the lens of China's behavior, and he tends to want to take a deeply aggressive posture to China. He has been very supportive of the president's trade war, which a lot of other officials in the White House think has been unwise uh, and undid the gains of the president's tax cuts from 2017. So one of the things that happens in this White House, because so many of them are not rowing in the same direction and because they tend to be at odds with each other and have all these personality conflicts, is depending on who is bringing somebody information, that tends to get looked at with a jaundiced eye. And that's what happened here with Navarro. And what did he say in the memo that could have or should have changed policy? I don't know that there was anything that he could have said, frankly, that would have changed policy, because I think this was the way that it was headed regardless. But I do think it is striking that he put this on paper and that we can go back and see as we were all trying to figure out what the administration knew and when they knew it. Again, I think unless it was given straight to the president, he was explaining to the president, this is where this is headed. I'm not sure it would have changed policy. But again, I just think as we come up with records of who did what, I just think this informs us uh, a little more. And is there any evidence that the president saw this memo? There is not evidence that I have right now, no. But again, we're just beginning to report on this, so stay tuned. Let me ask you this. The memo has some pretty stark warnings in it, and some of it is yet to play out. But what's going on right now in the White House amongst advisors on the task force and in the broader West Wing? It seems like there's a lot of 
back and forth, maybe even bickering, maybe even fighting going on behind the scenes. What's your reporting telling you about that? Look, there's a lot of back and forth behind the scenes and a lot of anger behind the scenes and frustration that there was not earlier action. Again, as I mentioned, that so much of this White House is about sort of knife fighting each other. There's a lot of blame game going on. There's a lot of people trying to cover for what they did or didn't do at various points. And so where things are now is a recognition that things have been a mess, but there is a division as to how bad this is going to get as we go forward. Um, You know, you saw Jared Kushner at the podium last week, pretty specifically echo his father-in-law that they question some of these estimates that are coming from states about what they need. And, you know, among the people who they question is Andrew Cuomo. It sounds as if Cuomo is saying in yesterday's briefing and today's briefing that they may not need as many uh, hospital beds as they had once thought they did. They may not need the ventilators that they thought they did. But emergency management is about having the supplies. It's not about doing a cost-benefit analysis in real time when people might need oxygen. So I think that you have had Cuomo and the president grappling with very similar concerns, the president much more vocally, about the impact that closing down the economy in the U.S. and the way that we have done, the impact that that has on our society and what it means. We've never seen something like this. And I, I think that the president is right to be thinking about that. I think the problem is, is that he tends to sort of look as if he's having a debate with himself at the podium. You have a contrast with someone like Cuomo, who acknowledges this is not sustainable for long periods of time, but comes down on the side of, I don't want to lose even one life. And so that's where you're seeing the discussion in the White House right now as well, beyond people sort of looking backwards and suggesting that their own actions were were good. In hindsight, there are a lot of people concerned about how much longer this goes on and what it will look like. Before we talk about President Trump at the podium during the briefing room, because I really do want to ask you about that, what has been the cost of the chaos on Trump. President Trump has always maintained that he likes a certain amount of chaos. Is this too much chaos for even him? I think that this is where the president, it's, I don't even know that it's about chaos so much as it's about understanding what elected officials and governments do in moments like this. So I think they're two separate questions. I think that he likes the staff chaos and the internal fighting. This is much more real. I think this is a White House that tends to look inward at who's up, who's down, who's you know winning Trump's affection. This is about real people and their lives. This is about people dying. It's about people losing their jobs. There's you know roughly 10 million people unemployed, and that number's probably going to go up. And this White House has struggled. The president has struggled. Jared Kushner has struggled to understand that this is not about them. And, you know, this is a, a White House where credit is the coin of the realm, you know, and I think that that's yeah. how they're looking at this as opposed to how to help people who are struggling. I mean, I, I, again, I do think the impulses to try to help are there, but there's no interest in process. There's no interest in sort of a ground up effort at FEMA to try to deal with protective equipment or to try to necessary supplies that FEMA generally does with states individually or a couple of states at once. We're not used to seeing them have to face this many states at once. But you're basically hearing Trump and his son-in-law describe stories as if they're haggling over a lease with a, a parking lot manager. You know, well, these are our ventilators or they're overestimating what they need. We're, this is just not how crises are supposed to operate. Well, another issue that's been bantered about, and certainly within the White House, has been the issue of hydroxychloroquine, 
the medicine that may or may not help people who have been afflicted with coronavirus. And you've been doing a lot of reporting on this. What are you hearing about this debate and why is it so at the forefront of this? So the president has latched on to this. I, I really do believe, based on my reporting, not because I realize that I think he's got some small stock holding uh, that relates to it, but I really do think this is about the fact that he wants a quick end to this. You know, he was, and he, you yeah. can, you can hear him, you know, sort of bemoaning this in his public statements at the podium where he talks about, you know, this was a great economy and it was booming and he had hitched his reelection hopes on the great economy. So when he's talking about that, he's talking about himself in part. And I think he thinks that hydrochloroquines combined with, with Z-Packs are a way to hasten the end of this. And the medical evidence, even though it's inconclusive, is he grasping at straws here or is this just something that he really thinks could help get people healthy again? I think it's both, right? I mean, I, I think that he genuinely hopes this will work. And look, I don't know anybody who doesn't hope a, a possible therapeutic will work. Right. Andrew Cuomo saying the same thing. Correct. I don't know of anybody. I don't, there, you know, there's a big move by some Trump allied media to suggest that the rest of the media is like rooting for people to be sick. That is insane. Nobody is excited to see people get sick. But I do think that the president is hoping that this is a therapeutic that can work. And I think that he is grasping at straws because the evidence is not conclusive on this. What I do think, though, it's interesting. Um, there was an argument between Anthony Fauci of the NIH and Peter Navarro, who wrote those memos on Saturday. They have argued before uh, about the China travel ban. And this time, Navarro has been a huge proponent of the chloroquines. He's been seizing on anecdotal evidence and on, on medical studies that other experts say are, are really, really not a good basis for doing widespread treatment on this. And that's really what Fauci's concern has been. You know, when the president goes to the podium and sounds like he's a cheerleader for this drug, there's a difference between optimism and hoping that something's going to work out and sounding as if you're suggesting people should take pills, you know, and hope for the best. And he literally keeps saying, what have you got to lose? I think that that's dangerous. Without talking about the risks that the drug also presents for some. Correct. And look, it is true that there can be off-label uses, but it has to be under the care of a doctor. My colleague, Katie Rogers, had a, a great bit of reporting from the Situation Room on Sunday where the president did drop by the task force meeting. He doesn't often, but he did drop by this one. And he was cautioned again by the, the health experts about just warning about the potential, you know, heart effects and and the, the negatives that can happen under treatments for chloroquines if it's not for the, you know, expected use, which is lupus treatment, rheumatoid arthritis, and so forth. And he said, right, heart issues, got it, and something to that effect. And then still went out and said, what have you got to lose? So he's got one speed, and, and you're seeing that now. So do you expect the chloroquines debate to continue to rage on, especially because people like Rudy Giuliani seem to be involved in it? I mean, there was a quote, I, I think, from the New York Times where Giuliani said, you know, as soon as I finished with Biden, I started with studying chloroquines. I mean, that's some of the kinds of issues that make this seem as if it's not just looking for a cure. Well, I think in Giuliani's case, A, I think a little too much has been made of Giuliani's role here. I, you know, I have no reason to believe Giuliani has a client in this, just not based on what he said, but what people close to him have told me. But he might be looking to have a client in this because he represents all kinds of people. And what I was told is that he discovered that he gets a lot more listeners to his podcast talking about chloroquines. So that's why he's doing it. But is that sound medical advice? No, it's not. It, I'm just not clear how much the president's actually listening to Giuliani versus Giuliani just kind of creating an echo chamber. Got it. 
Let's switch gears to the president and these briefings that he's doing. So he's commandeering the White House briefing room every day for an hour, hour and a half, two hours. These things have become something of a show for the American people. They've been contentious. President has torn after several reporters. What do you make of all this? I make of it that the president thinks that there is a better news story for him in having the story be about him fighting with reporters than having the story be about the the various failures by the government at dealing with the spread of COVID-19, whether it was the testing failures, whether it was the containment failures, although realistically, I'm not sure the containment would have worked anyway, because there's reason to believe that it was in the virus was in the country in, in the US long before they realized it. But I think it's better for him to, in his mind to be fighting with reporters. And I mean, I, I know some of this, I do think he legitimately gets triggered. He has a clear issue with Yamiche Alcindor, who's a fantastic reporter and former colleague. His treatment of her, I think, has been appalling. His statement to John Carl yesterday that you'll never make it. He's saying this to the a top correspondent for ABC who just wrote a Yeah, hasn't John argued? I think John's doing okay. It? I feel like he's made it. <laughs> I mean, if you're the if you're the chief White House correspondent for ABC News, right. which is the top He'll rated never network, be the anchor. I, arguably I, mean, I, I don't made know what it. I don't know what he was trying to say with that. I mean, I do know what he's trying yeah. to say, but it, it doesn't quite work. But I think yeah. for him, I think that, you know, the press is not popular. And I think that he thinks that he can look like he's really trying and we're hindering him. He's extremely good at selling. And I think this is part of the selling. So you've covered President Trump longer than just about anybody in the White House press corps, maybe longer than anybody. I, I, I don't know if it's than anybody, but than most people. But again, you know, there's actually a surprising number of New Yorkers who are now in the in the press corps and people who had covered New York politics. But yes, you need people who can hang with him. And you certainly have shown that you can hang with him. So you think this is a tactic that he's using to go out and start a brawl every day? I do. I think that, you know, in the same way that I think the media was a useful foil for him in 2016, and sometimes it was real and sometimes it was not, I think that he sees this as effective. I think if he didn't see it as effective, there would be some changes. I don't think everybody on his staff thinks this is effective. I think that there are people who would like him to stop fighting and and look as if he's trying to be more unifying at a moment like this. It's it's a very discordant message to say I'm a wartime president, but it's really up to the states or I'm a wartime president, but you are fake news. It's a hard sell for a certain percentage of the country. But he, as I said, he has one speed. Well, so let me ask you this. What do you think would happen if the network, so let's say CNN put Wolf Blitzer and Dana Bash in the White House briefing room for a day, or Jake Tapper, and the New York Times decided it was going to put Maureen Dowd and Tom Friedman, and so on and so forth, and you populated the White House briefing room with the most famous reporters in the land, people who Trump recognizes as famous, some as equally famous as him, do you think he would start the same kind of fights that he's starting with the weekend reporters who cover the New York Times who are maybe lesser known? Do I think that he would find picking those fights as useful? Yeah. Or, or do you think that he would stand up to a Wolf Blitzer, a Dana Bash, a Maureen Dowd? Yeah, I, <laughs> I think that he would. I think that if this was all in front of a camera, I think he would do the same level of yelling. So, yeah, I, I don't I don't actually think that this is just about recognizable anchors. I think this is who he is. <laughs> Okay. So, so much for hypotheticals. Uh, you know, th that's sort of like the dream White House briefing for you. Then. Yep, exactly. So going forward, what are the issues that you're paying the most attention to today? 
I mean, the main issue that I'm paying attention to and have been for the last couple of weeks is ventilators, the production of them, the distribution of them. Um, secondarily, a big issue is FEMA and two of my colleagues wrote a story about this yesterday, led by uh, Zolan County Youngs, that FEMA has been stepping in, the federal government has been stepping in after, you know, the president has encouraged states to go out and buy their own supplies and the feds are the backup. The feds have cut off a lot of purchase orders by the states and essentially rerouted what they've done to the federal government. Uh, so that's another big issue. The testing is a massive issue and the lags are still there. I know the president likes to say that we've done more testing in the U.S. than anywhere else. While that's technically true, it's not on a per capita basis, which is the metric that matters. And he says that to try to mask the failures in testing that had taken place. So those are what I'm watching. You know, it, it, there's then the sort of tertiary issue of this political campaign that is frozen in time. And I'm watching that as well. What do you make of the call between President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden? I think that it was smart of Biden to do. I think that you saw the president praise him from the podium yesterday. Um, I think that when you compare how this administration has handled this issue to say how George W. Bush and, and the, the failures of Katrina and the response were massive. But one thing he did do was he turned to his father and he turned to former President Bill Clinton to try to help lead certain disaster relief efforts. This president doesn't see the value in reaching out to his predecessors. He has said that. And so I think it was notable that Biden was the one who did the reaching out. Um, you know, I think it was a press story for a day. I don't expect it to be durable. I think Biden is doing whatever he can to get attention. And I think that was one one form of it. But I do think that Biden clearly from decades in the Senate believes in bipartisan compromise around issues. And so I think it's not surprising that he tried to make an effort on this. It's And it's also not surprising that the president took the call and had a nice call with him because this is a president who, while he can yell at people in a briefing room when there's a crowd, direct one-on-one -on -one interpersonal conflict is not his strong suit. Now, he's arguably one of the greatest communicators in recent history, sure. President Trump. And he's clearly able to stand in front of any audience of, you know, people asking him questions for hours at a time, has tremendous stamina for that. Do you expect that he's going to continue to commandeer the airwaves for the foreseeable future to do this? And do you think that he and his staff feel that he's been effective in doing so? I think that uh, his staff thinks there are some things that he has been effective at. I think that you can't underestimate the degree to which some of this was because he saw Mike Pence getting a lot of attention when he was at the, doing the briefings for whatever that 10 day period was. And now he wants in. So I wouldn't I wouldn't underestimate that. I don't know that he will come out every single day, but I do think you will see him a fair amount. Maggie, thanks so much for your time today and for the excellent reporting that you've been giving to us just about every day in The New York Times. Thank you for having me. Talk to you soon. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 